Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, the Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, Counsel to New Converts. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 15, verses 12 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It is important for every local church, as well as, well, every denomination and every community of believers to grasp the Great Commission. That is, Christ has commanded us to make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups on the face of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then also teaching them to observe everything that he's commanded us. That is, teach people the gospel. So they'll repent of their sins and turn to Christ and humble themselves in his presence and surrender their lives into his hands and follow him into eternity. See, that's the task of all believers, all churches, all Christian organizations. Even if, for instance, you know, you're an organization involved in works of charity, digging wells, providing food, education, helping people become self-sustaining, even there, you are not free from the command of Jesus given in the Great Commission. And it is amazing how quickly Christians find themselves involved in anything except the Great Commission. I mean, how quickly we busy ourselves, even in good deeds, and in things that would glorify God, and yet we leave the good and saving news that God sent his Son so that men and women might be reconciled to him. See, it's always our task to present Christ, him crucified for the sins of the world and raised for our justification. There's a call that goes out to all, come to God through Christ and be reconciled. Know that your sins can be forgiven. And might I say, if if you're listening to my voice today and have never known the reality of sins forgiven, then know this, God sent his son for you. You can this very day get on your knees wherever you are, Do it now. Confess your sins. Embrace Jesus as the lover of your soul, as the savior of your soul. Trust in him. Surrender your life to him. Take his outstretched hand, and he will take yours and lead you to forgiveness, change you from within, and lead you into eternity. You were created for this, and so be reconciled to God in Jesus, your savior. Well, we've been studying Acts 15, which is one of the most important moments in the history of the Christian faith. Paul and Barnabas have returned home from their first missionary journey, and they've been telling a delighted group of believers how God has opened a wide door to the Gentiles. Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, were coming to Christ in droves. But as wonderful as that moment was, it was attended by great difficulties. Converted Jews demanded that these Gentiles must be circumcised and submit themselves to all manner of kosher food laws, along with other Jewish distinctives. They said if they don't do this, they won't be saved. And so the Council of Jerusalem was called in order to discuss this important matter and resolve it once and for all. What must a man or woman do in order to be saved? Now, we've seen that the members of the Council of Jerusalem were divided at the outset. I mean, some said, yeah, the Gentiles must be circumcised. Others said, no. The discussion, or shall we say the debate, raged for some time, and then Peter spoke, and he reaffirmed what everyone should have remembered from the start. We believe that we Jews are saved by the grace of Jesus alone, and we also believe that the Gentiles are saved by the grace of Jesus alone. There can be no distinction between them and us. And of course, Peter also relayed how the first group of Gentiles 
Cornelius, that Roman centurion, he and his friends and family were saved by the grace of Jesus, not by circumcision. It was salvation by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, alone, and not circumcision added or any other thing. Now, as Peter finishes, Luke says, after that, the assembly fell silent. Other translations say the meeting came to order, that his order prevailed suddenly. Salvation, the entire doctrine that answers the question, what must I do to be saved from my sins? That doctrine rests on the assumption of grace alone. Now, let's now read what happened next. Acts 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And of course, Barnabas and Paul had been sharing this story with church after church, and you have to believe that they were pretty good at it by now. No doubt they mentioned every place they had been. Yeah, they had gone to the Jew first, but it was the response of the Gentiles that had been overwhelming. They were in Cyprus when the Roman proconsul of the island had turned to faith in Christ. They were in Pisidian Antioch, and there the synagogue had turned against the apostles, and yet many Gentiles were coming to Christ. And Paul would have said, all that were appointed to eternal life believed, and clearly God was appointing the Gentiles to eternal life. Now I wonder if the two men took extra time when they told the story of what happened in Lystra a city that had no Jewish synagogue at all. And yet there had been a man crippled from birth, and he had faith in the Lord and was immediately healed at the same time, and he stood on his feet and walked. And that account was eerily similar to what had happened so much earlier to Peter and John. You remember that they had come to the gate of the temple, and there was a lame man there, lame from birth, who sat there begging every day. And you remember that Peter told him, look, we've got no silver or gold but such as we have, we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he did. And it was just like that in Lystra. But that event in Lystra didn't happen outside the Jewish temple. Instead, it happened not far from the temple of Zeus. Yeah, the Spirit of God was drawing people within the shadow of a pagan temple. And when Luke says the assembly fell silent, I think he meant you could have heard a pin drop in the place. For many who were there, would never have heard of these events before. This was the first time they heard them. And might I interject here that there is a point of application for us. For those of us who think that it's unlikely to see anyone among your circle of friends come to Christ, perhaps what you need to do is get together with people who are constantly leading people to Christ. Spend some time with them. Hear about what God is doing. And from that, begin to imagine what God might do in your circumstance. Let's get back to our text. Peter has spoken and declared a theological foundation for the doctrine of salvation. Barnabas and Paul speak next, telling how that doctrine is right now being worked out on the mission field. And then it was the time for the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church to speak. And as you might remember, he's not just the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And so we know he has no little influence. So let's read the first part of his speech. And that's found in Acts 15, 13 to 18. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, I feel I have to backtrack and talk about how important this moment was. I mean, you've got to believe that the Christian Pharisees would have had to agree with Peter. Yeah, it's true. God has opened a door to the Gentiles. I mean, that part, as far as they were concerned, was undeniable. And they might have agreed, although reluctantly, that the Gentiles were saved by grace alone. And yet, they might have wanted to restate their argument now. Perhaps they would have wanted to say, look, we're saved by grace alone, but after salvation by grace, we know that we need to grow in our faith through strict observance to the law. By the way, Paul actually addresses this very matter in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3 verses 2 and 3 has Paul asking, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, when Paul says perfected by the flesh, he means perfected or growing into maturity by law-keeping. Do you think that's what happens? That is, it seems after the Council of Jerusalem, that might have been the argument of the Pharisees. Yeah, they would have said, we're saved by grace alone, but after you get saved, well, you'd better get circumcised, you'd better go kosher, and on and on. So getting back to the Council of Jerusalem, when James spoke... This was the last hope of the Christian Pharisees. I mean, they were all aware that James rigorously kept the law. I mean, Paul mentions that in Galatians 2 verse 12, when he mentions that men from James came, they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because they were committed to the kosher diet mandated by the law. So when James gets up to speak right now, we have to believe that depending on what he said, that would be a massive moment. The Pharisees wondered, is that our champion? Now, as to what James said, now that's very important for us as well. You know, for those of us who are unsure of what counsel we should give to new followers of Jesus, we need to hear James out. See, when a man or woman comes to faith in Christ, what are they to do? I mean, what part of their old lifestyle can they carry on? What part must end? You know, if you used to go to wine and cheese parties, can you still do that? If you used to live with your girlfriend, can you do that? So what's right and what's wrong? What's forbidden and what's allowed? New converts want to know. James will address that for us. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission in particular those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425. When James begins his important speech, he begins by affirming what Peter has already said. 
See, he doesn't object to Peter's statement about grace alone or that it was God himself who had directed Peter to the home of the Roman centurion. And furthermore, James affirms fully that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. James wants to say, just like Peter, I have to agree that if that doctrine is true, then it must refer to both the Jews and the Gentiles fully. Don't deny that, because that would be to deny grace. But then James goes one step further. It's not just the Lord's apostles who say these things. These things, he says, are also affirmed in the prophets. And with that, James quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And please notice that James says, and with this, all the prophets agree. And then, well, he only quotes one of the prophets, and that is Amos. But what James has in mind here is that what Amos says is illustrative of what all the prophets say. So why does James choose the prophet Amos? Well, let's see if we can understand this quote. Amos was a very interesting prophet. He began his prophecy in denouncing the sins of the nations around Israel, and all the hearers would have said, amen, you know, and then he denounced the sins of Judah, which was getting a bit close to home, but still, most of the people of Israel couldn't stand the people of Judah, and so they were still saying, amen, preach it, brother. But that was all just a warm-up act for Amos. He was getting ready to tell Israel, just like you are saying amen to God's condemnation of others, you're about to hear of your own sins and God's condemnation of you. Now, the reaction to Amos is exactly the same reaction as we might expect today. I mean, people love to talk about how bad someone else is, but don't we just hate it when our own sins are mentioned? And as you can imagine, well, Amos wasn't very popular for doing that. I mean, they wanted to kick him out of the country and send him back to Judah where he came from in the first place. No room for you here, they said, just get out. But Amos wasn't going anywhere. He was going to show Israel that she would be condemned. And so by the time we get to Amos chapter 9, the prophet says that Israel is going to be destroyed and that even if Israel dig their way all the way down to Sheol to hide from God, even from there, God's going to find them and punish them. And Amos ends that section by saying that all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. But like all the other prophets, Amos doesn't end there. He's not just condemning. It's not just about judgment over sin. It's about a gracious God, a God who remembers his covenant with his people. And Amos says that after Israel is destroyed, God's not going to walk away from his people. Instead, God will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. The place that once lay in ruins will be restored. Now, most Bible students understand this prophecy in Amos to refer to both the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians and then the destruction of Judah by the Babylonians. But after all that was done, and Israel had mourned in captivity for her sin and the suffering that she underwent, God would return in graciousness, and so a remnant would come back to the promised land. The fallen tent of David, just as Amos had predicted, would indeed be restored. But that's only half of the prophecy. The other half, well, it has to do with what God had in mind with the restoration of Israel. God would restore Israel so that the rest of mankind or the rest of the human race or the Gentiles would come and seek the Lord. Now, I can almost imagine what James would have told those gathered at the Council of Jerusalem. He would have said, don't you see what's happening? Jesus, our Messiah, came to the restored people of Israel, and he was the one who fulfilled the prophecy of Amos. 
right now as his name is preached to people like Cornelius the centurion and to the Gentiles that Barnabas and Paul have been mentioning. Right now, God's fulfilling that prophecy. The Gentiles are coming to the Lord through those who were sent out from the restored people of Israel. Now, by the way, that's, that's a very powerful message. And as I've said, this prophecy is not just confined to Amos. I mean, you might want to read Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, watch this, and all the nations shall flow to it. Well, now, if the Gentile nations are flowing to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, well, it must have been that the Gentile nations have converted themselves to the Lord. I mean, after all, why else would they come to Jerusalem with such eagerness? Or we might think of the promise of the millennium. It's found in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. It says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. So how is it that the whole world comes to Jerusalem in the last days? Is it not because people from all the nations have been seeking the Lord and finding him? And that, I think, is James' point. If we now, he says, stand against this move of God's Spirit, if we now put barriers before the Gentiles, making them be circumcised, and making them keep kosher diet rules, and observing Jewish high and holy days, and if we make them adhere to all manner of regulations that can't be interpreted into their culture, well, then we'll have stood against the prophecies that were made of the Gentiles seeking the Lord. And look, I need to interject here. I need to make a point of application for all of us. See, these words are for us as well. Don't you hear them? Even though we weren't at the Council of Jerusalem, I mean, by virtue of the fact that Luke has recorded these things for us, we're invited today to consider what this thing means. See, let me explain. You see, I grew up in a church that spoke only German. Yeah, people expressed concern for their English-speaking neighbors in my home church. Many in my home church argued, however, that if we give up our German language, we're going to lose our culture. So they argued, look, we can't lose our German culture. And in the process, they argued that we can still reach the English-speaking people if we have some English in our service. And they said it's not too much to ask for an English speaker in Canada to learn a little bit of German. After all, it's good for their souls. You see, they were making it difficult. And they were stressing things other than grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Now, my home church would have said, yeah, yeah, that's true. But can't we get German in there somewhere? Well, laugh if you will. But there are hundreds of ways we do the same thing today when we add cultural traditions that must be embraced before a person comes to Christ. James reminds us that we need to think seriously about that lest we find ourselves opposing the work of God. Well, of course, James is not done, so let's read the last part of his speech, Acts 15, 19 to 21. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, it seems to me that James must have had an official position at the Council of Jerusalem because after his speech, do you notice he gives the ruling? You know, many suggest that he served as a kind of a chairman of the meeting or something like that. At any rate, 
He's now in a position, having heard the theological truths set forth at the council, to put forward a position paper or a mandate that has to be enforced in all Christian churches. And the mandate is this. We should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. Translation, we should not make circumcision and unique Jewish distinctions necessary for the Gentiles. The Christian position is simply this. It does not require anyone to become culturally Jewish or culturally anything in order to turn to Christ. Don't trouble these new converts. Don't put barriers in the way of anyone who would turn to Christ. It's very important. It involves all of us asking, what unnecessary barriers do we have that might prevent someone from coming to Christ? And James adds, we need to write to the churches ensuring they abstain from three things. First, they need to abstain from any form of idolatry. That is, if they turn to Christ, it must be exclusive turning to Christ. You can't serve Christ and the idols or other gods or other religions or attach yourself to non-Christian philosophies. Conversion has to be exclusive conversion to Christ alone. You've got to turn from sin, turn to Christ alone. Second, you've got to abstain from sexual immorality. That quite simply means any form of sexual expression outside of the bonds of heterosexual marriage. Christ demands sexual purity. And finally, You must abstain from what is strangled and from blood. And that last bit of counsel has everything to do with maintaining unity between Jews and Gentiles and making it possible for them to worship in one church together. That wasn't meant as an absolute, but as a way of maintaining fellowship and keeping away from rancor. James says every local church must do this so that Gentiles are unhindered when they come to Christ. John, great message. Something I'm thinking, though, is, is there a concern that we can place some artificial barriers to people actually coming to Christ? Yeah, I think uh, we do it almost by nature. Because the gospel is so simple, uh, because what it demands of us is so forthright, it seems like we always want to complicate matters. So, you know, the, the placing of cultural roadblocks or legal roadblocks in the way of those who want to come to Christ has been one of the reasons why we've not won more people to faith in Christ. So I think it's very important for us to understand what is the true gospel and then to articulate that and insist on only that and not the roadblocks that sometimes get put in the way. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada and Bible Teaching you can trust. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. Join us, would you? Begin today 
experience the story of your redemption in the pages of God's book. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.